What's up, everyone? Hope you guys are doing well. And uh, it's good to be back with another episode of the all-new, all-awesome podcast. This is your host, Danny Barham. And as always, a lot to talk about this week. Um, There's been a lot of news in the entertainment industry. And one thing I thought I would talk about for a minute is just kind of the world of video games. I feel like as we get into June, which unbelievably... It is now June. You know, I always get excited for E3, and E3 is coming up. I think we're about uh, a week, a little over a week away from E3, which is crazy because I feel like normally uh, going into E3, you know, there are certain things we're all hyped about, certain big announcements that we're uh, expecting. And this year, I mean, of course, we don't have a physical E3 show, it's all virtual, similar to last year. Um, and, you know, I don't know what to expect, but I think one thing that has been really fascinating is uh, this past week, Sony did uh, a uh, sort of video showcase um, for their New Horizon game. Um, and Horizon Zero Dawn, of course, was one of the absolute great games of this past generation of video games. Uh, it released on the PS4. It was a brand new IP. You know, people didn't really know what to expect going in. And, you know, for me, it was one of my favorite games maybe ever. And uh, it was just a great combination of sort of open world um gameplay with a a really compelling uh, story that sort of combined uh, sci-fi, fantasy, kind of post-apocalyptic stuff. Uh, Had a great main character in Aloy uh, who was really well voice acted and there was great voice acting and production value all around. There was great combat. Uh, There were amazing visuals. There was this incredible world uh there were great monsters and and villains to fight um just a really uh fantastic game and so the sequel um the forbidden west is very highly anticipated it looked incredible from what sony showed uh in their in their showcase this week but i think what's interesting is the fact that there was sort of dropped in there as a little bit, uh, a little tidbit, but apparently the game is coming to PS4 and PS5. So originally everyone assumed this was one of the big PS5 exclusive games that would really be a potential system seller. And and now it was sort of dropped that uh, it was coming to PS4 as well. And then just today, we also saw that God of War, the new God of War that will be coming to PS5, uh, first they announced that it's delayed until next year. It won't be coming out until 2022. And it will also be coming out on PS4. And that was another one that was assumed to be a true sort of system seller for PS5. And I don't know, man. I mean... Yes, you know, both of those games, I'm sure, are going to be 
preferable on PS5 and just they're going to look amazing. But I mean, look, we're still in a really tough economy. We're still coming out of the pandemic. PS5s are still uh, hard to come by. And I don't know. I mean, at what point does Sony sort of transition to really pushing the new hardware um, via exclusive games? I mean, you know, I had been kind of thinking for a while, like, all right, I'm going to maybe, you know, pull the trigger on a PS5 this summer. Uh, and And part of that was I really want to, get the new Ratchet and Clank game, which is one of my favorite series. Uh, but, and as far as I know, I think that is, is PS5 only still. Um, but that being said, I mean, you know, for one game, I'm probably not going to get the new system. And so I've got a lot going with the PS4. I've still got a big backlog. I just purchased, I think I mentioned the other week, uh, Mass Effect Legendary Edition for PS4. Um, and there's a lot more games coming out just in the next few months that are, are looking good for PS4. So we'll see. I mean, I think, man, Sony is, is a little bit backing themselves into a corner because, you know, as a as a fan, I'm not too upset that I have more time to just go through that backlog on the PS4 and play through some Switch games and things like that. At the same time, just from a business perspective, you know, you want there to be a a compelling reason to get that next generation of consoles so that when eventually we do upgrade, you know, you feel good about it. And so I'll be curious if at E3, um, Sony, of course, will not have an official E3 press conference like they have in years past. I think this will be the third year in a row that they sort of do their own thing and do, uh, you know, uh, their version of like a Nintendo Direct. And, uh, oh, I think it's called a State of Play, right? And, um, you know, we'll see. Are they going to have any surprises? Are they going to have any uh, bombshells? Are they going to have anything new releasing this year? Because it's slim pickings right now. And this is true. I mean, it's not uh, just Sony, uh, you know, Nintendo, Microsoft. It's been actually kind of crazy how light uh new releases have been in the games and industry in terms of volume for the last year and obviously the pandemic is causing a lot of that um but i think this was a problem even before the pandemic where just the development time on these games has gone so out of control um and the risk associated with each game is considered so high but something's got to give i mean you know it's just not sustainable. Like what kind of a games industry is it? If each console gives you, you know, a a small handful of exclusive games per year, it's just crazy. Um, And that's not how you bring in a more diverse audience or, uh, you know, get new people really on board with, with, with games. So on one hand, the industry has a lot of positive momentum. You know, people have been stuck at home, they're looking to get back into games. On the other hand, I just don't know that uh, these these uh, big console manufacturers are 
giving people enough to really uh, keep that momentum going. So we'll see. I mean, uh, I hope Sony has some surprises for us. You know, Nintendo announced today they're going to have a Nintendo Direct uh, as part of E3, and they've got some announcements. We'll see. Uh, You know, I feel like Nintendo has been pretty light in terms of big new AAA games for the last, you know, year or two years now. So we'll see what happens. There's also rumors of a new Switch, a new version of the console that's upgraded. I don't know. I mean, I'd rather Nintendo just give us a couple great games than than really focus on hardware for right now. Um, Because if you think about it, I mean, the Switch just really could use some original games. And, you know, when it first launched in that first year or two years, we got Mario Odyssey. We got Zelda Breath of the Wild. But what have been the must-play games since then? I mean, I just don't know. A lot of them have come from the indie world rather than from Nintendo or from AAA third-party publishers. So we'll see what happens there. Microsoft... I don't even know what's going on with them. I feel like, you know, they've got some big guns in terms of Bethesda, you know, now that they own that studio, you know, will they have exclusives from Bethesda from, you know, whether it's Skyrim or or other franchises? Uh, Will they have any of these long, long awaited first party Microsoft games that have been in the works forever? I don't know. So we'll see. I feel like, uh, you know, in theory, Sony has all the momentum right now, but they're going to need some big PS5 guns in order, I think, to really make an impact. So we'll see what happens. It's interesting. Um, What else? I do have some good picks to talk about this week. Um, Oh, one other thing before I get to that. It's just funny. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk this week about AMC theaters and will they buy um, Arclight, which we talked about, you know, before. Big deal, especially here in the L.A. area where the Arclight chain was very beloved. In particular, their their sort of iconic Hollywood location uh, that was part of the that had the Cinerama Dome, the iconic landmark as part of, you know, that theater. And, you know, I think a lot of people are sort of cringing at the idea of AMC just turning some of those theaters into kind of generic AMC theaters. And, you know, I'm a fan of AMC theaters. I think they do a good job. I've probably been the AMC Burbank 16's best customer of the last 15 years. Um, So I can't complain about AMC. However... um, you know, I do think there's something special about the Arclight, especially that Hollywood location. So I don't know if it does happen with AMC. Uh, you know, I'd love to see them keep the Arclight branding. I'd love to see them keep the name and sort of the more premium upscale feel of the Arclight theater. Um, you know, for me, I feel like there's something about like when I go see a, a big Marvel movie, I like seeing it at the AMC. I like that kind of like populist feeling uh, of being there. I like uh, just the the comfort of being in an AMC and that sort of classic theater feel. Uh, 
Um, and I love seeing movies there on IMAX and, and, you know, using a list and it's a great deal if you have a list. Uh, however, for like indie movies, prestige movies, those I often do like to see it at the Arclight, especially given that their, you know, policies really crack down on cell phone usage, talking during the movies, and they just tend to attract a uh, clientele that's kind of more hardcore movie fans that know uh, the rules, you know, they, they get it. And so, you know, I hope that the Arclight does remain in some form. And, I've, you know, uh, the Arclight in its previous incarnation, they would have um, all the, you know, big sort of awardsy movies would open their first. I hope there's still a theater like that um, in that Hollywood location. And they would have, you know, the Q&As with directors and actors and all that. So there was so much that really made that Arclight a special movie theater. Um you know, and then and that's aside from just the overall sort of aesthetic of it and the classiness of it and the fact that there's a nice restaurant as part of the theater that sort of, you know, is monitoring the time that you have your movie at so that they're making sure to get you your food on time. All those little things I really liked about the Arclight experience. So I hope AMC, I think it would be smart of them too, because you know, the, the Hollywood location, for example, the Arclight was, I believe, one of the top grossing theaters in the country. And yes, it's in Hollywood. You know, it would get certain tourism uh, dollars and people would go to that theater regardless of whether it was an AMC or what have you. But I do think people went to the Arclight, you know, especially locals, because it was the Arclight. And they enjoyed that experience and uh, knew there was something special and, and premium about it. So AMC, if they do buy the Arclight, I hope they keep it the Arclight, keep that premium experience, keep that branding. You know, they can do whatever they want with the Pacific theaters that are at the Glendale Galleria and the Grove. Turn those into AMCs for all I care. Um, you know, they, were, they weren't that different from AMCs anyways as it stood. So do what, you know, do what you want with those Arclight in particular, the Hollywood location. I'd love to uh, see some of that branding remain. Um, so with that said, I'll be right back with my picks of the week. All right. So for my first pick of the week, I just wanted to revisit a show that I did previously talk about. But I've now finished the whole first season. Uh, and that show is Shadow and Bone. So I had been watching this, uh, you know, about one episode per week. But uh, over the Memorial Day weekend, um, you know, we had a little extra time. And uh, my girlfriend and I decided, you know what? We've got three episodes left. Let's just finish this thing off. And, and it didn't hurt that uh, we had watched episode five. Um, and that episode really felt like a turning point to me where, you know, I feel like it was one of those shows that started out just a lot of characters, a lot of exposition, a lot of world building to do. I felt a little lost at times, a little overwhelmed, wasn't quite getting how everything fit together, was getting confused a lot about who was who and what the different parts of the world were and all that. 
episode five though felt like a big turning point where things just really started to click um we really had sort of the battle lines drawn for the show and we really understood like okay now you know the build-up is is sort of complete here's what the show is from this point on it's going to be this epic battle of good versus evil you know here's the different sides here are the heroes here are the villains it all started to sort of gel and episode five i thought was really great and episode six seven and eight just great couple of episodes as well the show really finished off on a high note i thought um and in particular the final episode of the season really just felt like a movie and had some big action scenes really well choreographed some some really big you know special effects and just had a really epic feel to it which i liked a lot so to back up for a second you know i've I've talked about it before but basically shadow and bone it's adapted from a book series it's sort of a fantasy somewhat a ya type of series um but i do think there's something in here for everyone um if you're at all a fantasy fan uh it's got something that will um you know excite you it's got a big epic good versus evil battle it's got romance it's got um you know really cool action it's got great female characters male characters straight characters gay characters um it's got really cool sort of locations and settings um it's got really something for everyone it's a very diverse cast um you know there's a lot of representation in it so i think you know there's a lot to to like and it it feels like a show that has a lot of well-worn tropes of fantasy and sort of ya but also that feels very new and different and of the moment Uh, especially by the time i got to the end of the season i really felt like you know what there's stuff in here i've seen before but there's also a lot of stuff i haven't and sort of new twists on um you know on sort of uh the classic uh, archetypes of, of fantasy so you know i thought it was it was really well done in that respect the basic plot uh, you know as i've talked about but just to recap is you know it's sort of this fantasy world where uh the world has been divided by this uh thing called the fold where it's sort of this shadowy no man's land where to cross through it to get from one side of the world to the other is extremely dangerous it's sort of this shadow world that's filled with this e- these evil almost uh, lovecraftian type of creatures um and so it's very difficult to get through and it creates a lot of problems for the people of the world and a lot of tensions between the two sides um there's also in this world um uh, sort of a class of magic users um called the grecians who uh have all different magic abilities and they're almost kind of like the mutants of this world you know many people despise them uh they can be uh discriminated against because of their abilities but they have all kinds of interesting abilities um and so the main character alina starkoff uh 
he is sort of a particular type of Grecian um, who has maybe, just maybe, the ability to actually destroy and undo the fold and unite the world. And so uh, she is a very sort of unique and uh, much sought after character um, in this world because of her ability. And so you have a lot of intrigue around what will she do with her power? Will people follow her? Will she become a leader? Because on the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, General Kurigan, uh, AKA the Darkling, who is sort of the master of shadow. And, you know, as the series goes on, you learn more about him, you learn kind of what he's after, and you start to see that the show ultimately is going to be a battle between Alina Starkov and the Darkling. And kind of in between, you have really the breakout characters of the show. And I'll say a big reason of why those last few episodes were so awesome uh, were these characters called the Crows, who are this group of thieves and sort of, uh, you know, rogues, I guess you would call them, uh, who are kind of in this morally gray area um, where they're kind of out for themselves, trying to, you know, just profit or scrape by. And, you know, they'll, they'll kind of double cross people and uh, kind of play all sides against each other. Um, but all three actors who make up the three crows are absolutely fantastic. Um, the main guy, Kaz, who's played by an actor, Freddie Carter, he just is sort of this classic um, sort of thief, magician, type of character um you know it's just a really cool actor um <clears throat> you know he's kind of one of like this very sort of grim stoic guy but who you know clearly has uh, some heart uh that he sort of buries beneath the surface a little bit um and just a really cool character he's got this cane that he walks with that he can use as a weapon um and so he was he was one of the breakout characters for sure. And then, um, you know, as part of his crew, the Crows, you've also got this character named Inej, uh, who is played by an actress named Amita Suman, uh, who is freaking awesome. She's sort of like straight out of the Assassin's Creed game. She's got the hood, um, the cloak. And she just has like a million knives and daggers that she carries with her. And she can sort of, you know, use the daggers in all sorts of, of crazy ways. And she can like take you out by throwing a knife from, you know, a huge distance. And uh, just a really cool character with an interesting backstory. You know, she had been sort of uh, unwillingly part of a... Um, Basically, uh, you know, I think the implication is that she was part of this menagerie that was basically like a brothel and she was freed from that service. And so she's indebted to Kaz, um, but she wants to be more than just indebted to him. She wants to, you know, as the, as the show goes on, you realize that she has this whole kind of religious element to her character and she wants to sort of do good in the world. 
and so really interesting, like multidimensional character who also just kicks ridiculous amounts of ass. Um, and then lastly, um, I'm just looking for the name of the actor here. Um, and I'm not seeing it, but basically the third member of the crows um, is named, I believe Jesper. Um, and he is sort of this uh, just really like cool, slick, like wisecracking gunslinger who's just is like a master of guns. And he's always like flipping his guns around in cool ways. And, you know, uh, he's sort of like this, you know, he's like a classic cowboy um, mixed with like, he's also kind of a, he has like, you know, he, all the crows have this sort of like Victorian garb to them, I guess. Um, so he has some of that. And then he's also, uh, he happens to be gay. And so there's kind of a unique element there that sort of subverts what you might normally, you know, the normal archetype of kind of the, the gunslinger. Um, so, so really fun character. He's always, he gets all the best lines, uh, does Jesper. Um, and, uh, he has a lot, he brings a lot of the kind of humor to the show as well. He just has tons of great, you know, banter and kind of witty one-liners. So, uh, awesome character. And the crows just really just make the show in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah and you know there's kind of a love triangle there's um this character mall who is sort of the 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 you know star-crossed uh love interest of alina starkoff uh who grew up with her as a kid and um there's a lot of other fun characters i won't get into all of them or go down the whole list but um you know i think by the time i got to the end of the season you know, you sort of see that what you've been watching so far is almost like The Hobbit, where, you know, it's sort of like the intro to to everything. And it feels like now we're going to get into The Lord of the Rings, where, you know, now the stage has been set for, um, you know, some truly epic stuff to go down and sort of this massive war and, you know, good versus evil uh, conflict. So I'm really liking it. Um, it. It left me in a place where I was excited for, for more. And again, I will say it can be a little uneven at the beginning. Um, you've got to, again, learn just a ton of characters, a ton of lore. But uh, it does start to really gel towards the second half of the season. Um, and it's only eight episodes. And I would say the second half, you know, really sucked me in and, and, you know, really got me excited for what was to come. So shadow and bone want to do that check-in now that I've seen the whole season, really liked it, highly recommend, and it's on Netflix. So check it out. All right. So my second pick of the week, um, I'll just give a quick shout out to a new comic book that I just read. It just came out this week with a new number one. And, you know, I always like trying uh, new comics. Um, I, uh, you know, especially it's it's exciting sometimes when it's from a creator you already like. Uh, and also from a creator that, 
you never heard of before. Um, and I'm going to talk about two of them this week. So to start, though, I wanted to talk about a comic that I just read. Like I said, it came out this week um, from a writer who's just been killing it lately. Um, and so the comic is called The Nice House on the Lake. And it's written by <clears throat> James Tinian Four. And the artist is Alvaro Martinez Bueno. And James Tinian, he has been, as many have noted, he's just been on a hot streak. He's been writing uh, Batman for DC Comics. And he's been he's been on Batman for a while on different incarnations, but his current run has been probably his best work yet writing Batman. He's also write, writing a comic that I've already talked about on the podcast, which, by the way, is still absolutely kicking ass. And that's called The Department of Truth, which I highly, highly recommend. Absolutely enjoying that one. Now he's got another new comic. Um, this one is published by DC, but it's part of their Black Label line, which is sort of separate from their mainline DC universe. And this comic is called The Nice House on the Lake. And issue number one just came out. And holy crap. I read this comic. And, you know, sometimes... The thing I love about comics is sometimes you just go in totally cold. You don't know the premise. You really know nothing other than, in this case, I was already a fan of the writer, James Tinian. And I also, I guess I knew it was some sort of horror premise because of the, some stuff I had read and, and the cover clearly was, was horror. Um, wow, this has such a cool premise. And, you know, I saw some things with James Tinian where he talked about how it was inspired by being stuck in the pandemic and, you know, how we all formed our bubbles and things like that. Um, but... I almost don't want to say much about the premise because you got to go in cold, I think. Um, and if I say too much, it'll it'll spoil it. Um, basically, here's the very basic thing I'll say. It's about a woman who is sort of a loner, and you know she's had a lot of trouble with relationships and. She hasn't met, uh, you know, she's trying to meet a decent guy. And she meets this one guy who, you know, I think at a bar, he's very mysterious. You know, he's got these like weird sunglasses that he wears even at night. Um, and he talks in very kind of uh, ambiguous, like strange language. And he, he strikes up a conversation with her. Uh, and they end up, you know, communicating on and off. They go on some dates, but he sort of will disappear and then resurface and disappear and resurface. And one day, out of the blue, he invites her to go to this lake house. Presumably, he's, like, pretty rich. He's got resources. He invites her to go to this lake house he owns. Uh, he says other people, other friends are going to be there. And it's going to be a getaway. And so she doesn't have a lot of other stuff going on. 
she decides to take him up on the offer and go. And from there, things get pretty crazy. Uh, and like I said, this is horror. Um, so there is some uh, pretty shocking stuff. Very timely stuff. Uh, like I said, things that were inspired by the pandemic. There's some really evocative art by uh, Bueno. Um, I don't think I was familiar with him before. Um, not that I'm recalling off the top of my head. Um, but he does some really great art that um, has a very grounded look, but also a very atmospheric, almost nightmarish look to it. And he, and he sort of treads the line. So it's perfect for this book. Um, and yeah, man, Tinian, um, he, he's been getting better and better as a writer. As someone, you know, I've been following his writing for, I don't know, 10 years now, maybe more. And I feel like he's really become a great writer in the last year or two. Um, and he, he just keeps getting better. And, you know, I think with this in the Department of Truth, he's really been given free reign to just do, you know, to try things out and to go big with the premise, with the, with the premise. And uh, again, I don't want to talk about this one too much more and give anything away because it's one of those books, picked it up, went in cold, and it was awesome. Um, my jaw was on the floor by the end. I can't wait to read more. I have no idea where it's going to go from here because uh, number issue number one is almost like it almost feels like self-contained in a way. And so it's a little unclear like where the, the next chapter would go. Um, but man, I can't wait to see. Um, so nice house on the lake. If you're looking for a good new comic, if you're looking for something scary, creepy, shocking, check it out. It's really good. It's one of the best issue number ones that I've read in, in quite a while. Um, but with that being said, I will be back with my next pick of the week to talk about even another cool number one that I liked. So stay tuned. I'll be right back with my third pick of the week. All right. So yeah, some really good comics have been coming out lately. Um, like I said, it's always fun when you get a new number one, you don't know exactly what to expect and, and you're very pleasantly surprised and sort of excited by what you've just read and eager for more. And so another uh, new comic that just came out um, recently uh, with a new number one. This is from Image, and the comic is called Made in Korea. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always like Image, they have a really good track record. Whenever they have a new number one, I always at least give it a look just to see what, what the deal is. And when I just looked at this one, I was instantly intrigued because uh as i've talked about i love anything having to do with robots ai um any sort of sci-fi story in that subgenre. and so when i saw this one i was like oh interesting i i think i have to check this out so i, I gave it a read made in korea it's a six issue mini series and issue number one just recently came out at the end of may um and 
it was really cool. I liked it a lot. It's written by a guy named Jeremy Holt, who I was not familiar with. Um, he seems like a really cool dude, great writer. Uh, I tweeted about the fact that I liked this comic, and he very quickly responded and uh, thanked me for uh, recommending it, which was awesome. Um, so yeah, I'm already like very, uh, you know, becoming a fan of this writer, Jeremy Holt. Um, and basically, you know, again, I don't want to spoil too much, but um, the basic premise here is we're sort of in this world uh, with some shades of The Handmaid's Tale where people are having trouble uh, having babies and giving birth. Um, and so people have resorted to adopting these new sort of robot babies that are called proxies. And you buy one, you set it up, and you've got an instant child who happens to be a robot. And so there's a lot of mystery in this first issue, and we're not quite sure uh, how all the pieces fit together quite yet. Um, but there's sort of two parallel stories. One is about this uh, guy in Korea who works for presumably the company that's sort of the main company that makes these proxy robots. And then secondly, you've got in Texas, this couple that is uh, like a young couple. They're looking to have a kid. And unfortunately they would like to maybe get a proxy, but they don't think they can afford one. And things start to intertwine between the two stories between this guy in Korea and this couple in Texas and uh, some really interesting stuff happens that I won't spoil. Um, but I, I think this will be a series that, you know, really gets into sort of what makes a person a person, you know, what is the nature of uh, artificial intelligence and robotics and androids and what can go wrong with them. <laughs> Uh, especially when we start integrating uh, robots and humans, which is, you know, a, a premise that always completely fascinates me. You know, anything from uh, Westworld to humans, the much-missed uh, show, uh, the British show Humans. Um, you know, previously in comics, I was a huge fan of the Luna Brothers, what they did with uh, their comic, uh I think it was from Jonathan Luna and Sarah Vaughn uh, called Alex plus Ada. I was a huge fan of that comic. One of my favorites ever. Um, and uh, this seems like a, it could be a really interesting new entry in sort of the robot AI sci-fi genre. So I would recommend it. Check it out. Uh, again, it's called Made in Korea. Go to your comic shop or go online. Go to Comicology download it to your ipad or you know amazon uh fire device or whatever it is you have check it out give it a read support new comics support comic creators and yeah that's all i've got for this week so try to keep it pretty succinct i'll be back next week with a lot more and until then hope you guys are hanging in there doing well and i'll be back next week with more. Thank you guys. Thank you for listening.